Hello, and welcome to another Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 15 in a series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. What a scary sounding title. That is, if you don't know, I am not in any way saying to abandon or leave our faith in Jesus. I am suggesting we do just the opposite of that and refocus and strengthen our faith in Him. I'm also not saying that we should abandon our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I am suggesting that we should strengthen relationships with them. And I'm not saying that authentic believers in Jesus should stop meeting together. I'm saying we should re-examine the original basis and purpose of gathering and meeting with others who have been called out by Jesus in light of what the Bible says. But you know all this if you've been listening. Well, we've been working our way through the New Testament, seeing what it specifically has to say about the purpose and function of the ecclesia when they gather. In the last episode, we started into the book of 1 Corinthians. This week, we'll pick back up there in chapter 12 as we talk about the role of the gifts of the Spirit in the ecclesia. The Holy Spirit plays a large part in the ecclesia that Paul wrote about not only in causing the called out to understand and accept the truth of the gospel, but in actively facilitating supernatural abilities which are for the benefit of all in the local ecclesia. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit brings about many diverse what it calls gifts and ministries and activities. I don't believe Paul intended this as a comprehensive list of manifestations of the Spirit or the ways that the Holy Spirit uses members of the ecclesia, but here are those that he specifically mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 31. I'm not reading that whole passage, it's just the list. So, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in various languages, interpreting various languages, teaching, uh, the apostles, administrators, and helpers. Those are the roles and gifts that Paul listed there in 1 Corinthians 12. The emphasis of this passage is on the Holy Spirit. All these gifts are provided by the same Spirit of God for the purpose of edifying the ecclesia. The Spirit of God is very active and involved in all aspects of His ecclesias. This is not a checklist of gifts which are mandatory for a community of the ecclesia to function properly. Obviously, these gifts must have been in existence in and around Corinth for the Corinthians to be familiar with what Paul was writing about. Paul specified in chapter 12, verse 1, that the Spirit distributes, quote, to teach one individually as he wills." Unquote. The Spirit may will that no one in a local community of the Ecclesia has any of these gifts that are mentioned. He may will that in another community of Ecclesia that they'll have all of these gifts and possibly many more that aren't even mentioned. God is not a God who normally rubber stamps anything. Again, the point here is that there are many things going on in the Ecclesia, but just one Spirit is behind all of them. 
Well, many commentators will try to normalize or naturalize the spiritual gifts that Paul listed. For example, the gift of the word of knowledge might mean to them that it is that only God has allowed someone to succeed academically. A word of wisdom means only someone is wise. Prophecy means preaching. Healing means you're skilled with medicine, those kind of things. So, although I'm not going to elaborate here on what I believe these gifts are, I will say I believe the approach of taking the supernatural out of Scripture is a product of the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. It's a lie. Taking these spiritual special abilities as something normal or natural is not how the Ecclesia at Corinth would have understood Paul. The gifts Paul was talking about were out-of-the-ordinary abilities that people don't naturally possess. Otherwise, they would not have been remarkable, nor would Paul have tied them to the Holy Spirit. If Paul was only speaking about normal abilities that people were born with or could acquire by getting an education, it would have resulted in a big, so what, from the Corinthians, and would have begged the question, don't the pagans have all those same abilities, Paul? Is it the same Spirit who is leading them too? There's nothing in the New Testament indicating that any such gifts and Holy Spirit-given abilities have ceased to exist. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians that one day they'll be unnecessary and they will cease, but as 1 Corinthians 13 verses 8 to 10 tells us, that'll be when Jesus returns. Yet, the Holy Spirit is under no obligation to give these gifts when He does not need to use them <laughs> for a local ecclesia to function according to the way that He wants them to function. He does not give these gifts out of obligation or for our entertainment. Personally, I know what it is to experience the filling of the Spirit, but I don't believe that the Spirit gives gifts such as speaking in tongues, as a one-size-fits-all sign of our salvation. Nor is it a sign that one is filled with the Holy Spirit. God is a God of individuals. Well, in the primal or first days of the ecclesia, as the network of believers came, became established, the gospel spread in the absence of a written New Testament. I'm not at all saying that spiritual gifts have passed away, or that the Holy Spirit is not just as active among the ecclesia as He's ever been. But I expect that the Holy Spirit utilized more supernatural gifts in the very beginning than He did after the called-out ones had access to the written record of what Jesus and the apostles said and did. I also expect today, in places where persecution of the called-out is still great, you know, like in Iran, and following Jesus must be accomplished underground, again, like Iran, or where resources, including Bibles, are extremely limited, that the Holy Spirit is still utilizing spiritual gifts and abilities in those places to bring about His will in the ecclesia. Again, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit is not equally as present and active amongst every local cell of ecclesia today. It's only to say that He has a custom plan for each and will give them each 
what they need according to their circumstances. The seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation come to mind now. Jesus didn't come back and just tell them all the same thing. He had a different message for each of those churches. Well, what Paul is emphasizing here is the crucial role that the Holy Spirit has among the ecclesia. Yet, while the called out are still in their earthly bodies, it's very possible for human reason or carnality to rule in a local community rather than the Holy Spirit. I mean that in two ways. First, we can either crowd out the works of the Holy Spirit in an ecclesia by allowing the traditions and wisdom of man to rule and take the Holy Spirit's place. And we can allow this to convince us that the Holy Spirit is no longer active in the way that he once was. This is what Paul called quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. Or, secondly, in our zealousness to allow the Holy Spirit to rule, we can end up faking the movement or work of the Spirit. Tongues are easily faked. Prophetic utterance styles are learned and passed down through generations by emulating others. Emotional responses, group psychology, natural physiological responses to music, and sociological phenomenon are all very real, and the humans who make up the churches are all very susceptible to them. So-called worship leaders can be very skilled at manipulating human emotions. These things may be confused with the work of the Holy Spirit when they happen. And these are all reasons the Apostle Paul and John commands us to, quote, test the spirits, unquote, to see whether they are from God or not. Well, next, let's talk about the functioning of a ecclesia as a body. In my survey of what the New Testament says about the ecclesia and how it is to function when they're together, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians provides the most specific guidance. That guidance tells us that the ecclesia is very dependent on the Holy Spirit, like we were just talking about, and very dependent on functioning as one unit made up of individual members. When the ecclesia gathers, it's not a show that one watches and then leaves. Similarly, it's not a service where we go and we're served and then leave. It's an interactive experience in which Jesus is the head and the center of focus as the Holy Spirit leads. This is true for the entire time the ecclesia is gathered in Jesus' name, not only during any worship portion of a service that's taken place in the assembly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 compares the ecclesia to a physical body. The parts of a body and the functions they performed are likened to the parts of the ecclesia and the functions that individual members perform. The idea is that in both a physical body and the ecclesia, there are different parts, each with its own important function, and each is dependent on every other part of the body. As Paul discusses the function of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, he explains the only things that will remain in the end are the overarching principles of the ecclesia, which are faith, hope, and love. Paul emphasized that 
all the manifestations represented by the spiritual gifts matter for nothing without love. The ecclesia is not about spiritual gifts or abilities and responsibilities. All those things like teaching, prophecy, and other, other gifts only support faith, hope, and love within the ecclesia. For anyone looking for major differences between today's church and how a local biblical ecclesia can and should function, it is found right here. A local ecclesia should function as a body with everyone fulfilling their Holy Spirit-given roles as the parts of the body. Jesus is the head of the body, and the Holy Spirit is the lifeblood which moves throughout the body. In contrast, the, the reality of what goes on in local churches is that its members depend on the pastor to not only perform all the functions of the body, many times anyway, but also serve as its head, only giving a nod to Jesus at times. Of course, sometimes the pastor will have help from a few loyal members of the local body, and this can be compared to like an arm doing the work for the leg and the liver in, the, in a body. Churches that have a large paid staff only want their members to perform the functioning, the function within the body of attending church and giving their money to support the body. Both of these scenarios do not lend themselves to allowing the Holy Spirit to lead. So many attending churches today, while they may actually have a gift or ability that they are not using, are simply fulfilling the role of the appendix <laughs> in the body. Nobody's exactly sure about what the appendix does, but the body functions just fine without it. Nobody would notice it missing, while it still can cause a lot of pain and problems when you have one and it goes bad. This is sad but true. Churches are full of appendixes. These are those who are not fulfilling their Holy Spirit-given role. This is an inherent problem of large churches where people can blend in without being noticed from week to week. How would it look for a body to be operating according to the principle that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12? Well, the bottom line that should concern us is that it would look nothing like church does today. The idea triggers fear of the unknown in many. The importance of routine and religion, after all, are absent from what Paul is teaching, yet that's so dominant in churches now. Thinking about doing church other than the way it is now, people worry that things would be out of control. There would be awkwardness, confusion, long pauses of silence. No one would know when the meeting was over. No one would know what to expect. What if Lisa starts going on and on about her week again? Who's going to shut her up? <laughs> and what if Joe wants to sing another one of his off-key original praise songs? What do you mean there's no one single person in charge? Well, you know what's responsible for all that fear? Given what Paul tells us is true and trustworthy about how it is to work within the ecclesia when it assembles? It's a terrible but true statement, but we do not trust Jesus to be the head of the body and the Holy Spirit to lead us. If you have a pastor who week after week puts together his sermon on Thursday and practices his speech on Friday to give on Sunday, how is it 
that's someone else in the body who has a message that the Holy Spirit wants the body to hear is ever going to be able to deliver it. If you're relying on the worship team to come in and manipulate you into a joyful altered state from what you originally walked in the doors of the church with, rather than leading the group in a song that you've been blessed by that week that you're sure others would be blessed by, when are you ever going to have the opportunity to do that? I, I suppose you could run the idea by the worship director and take the risk of him or her telling you it's a, in a bad key or they don't know how to play the F-sharp minor chord that's in the song. So it's probably not just, it's going to not happen, right? Maybe someone feels moved to pray after hearing something the pastor said, but since that isn't in the church bulletin, there's no way that's going to happen. Planning. Schedules, programs, services, ceremonies, religion, bulletins, paid positions, and official responsibilities are but, are but some of the ways that the Holy Spirit is squashed in the church. Being led by the Spirit does not have to result in something spooky. <laughs> like you may have heard in a church you've visited. Maybe you've been creeped out by something that you've heard. <clears throat> or maybe the one you're attending now, the church you're attending now, where someone sounds almost possessed when they give a prophecy, when they're speaking quickly in a higher-than-normal-pitched voice as they utter the words, Oh God, in every sentence. Oh God, we're thankful, God, for your word today, Oh God, that you, our God, should grace us with this new message, Oh God, for your church. God, that you may lead us, Oh God. I don't mean to make fun here or accuse anyone of engaging in something unauthentic. I'm just saying that we should be very wary of unauthentic that comes to us in the name of Jesus. We should test the spirits. At any rate, following the lead of the Holy Spirit is always going to be orderly because He is a God of order, not confusion, fear, or spookiness. <laughs> It's going to result, following the Holy Spirit is going to result in blessings that only God can give rather than what man has practiced and is trying to impose on us or manipulate us into. This all starts with meeting other authentic followers of Jesus in His name for the purpose of promoting belief, hope, and loving one another as your agenda with nothing else planned ahead of time besides what the members of the body bring with them. I'll talk about the historical size of congregations later in a later episode, but needless to say, the larger the group, the more difficult the level of intimacy and trust needed becomes. So, for now, let's move on. When I was a child in Sunday school, I could earn a sticker next to my name on a piece of paper on the wall if I attended Sunday school, you know, what a, <laughs> what a great goal in life that was at the time to get a sticker on a piece of paper. I could earn an extra sticker if I brought someone with me. Inviting others to church was pushed hard in Sunday school. Well, despite many years of faithfully attending Sunday school, I am sad and ashamed to say that I never did earn that second sticker, although I spent a lot of time feeling guilty about it and thinking about it. As an adult, 
There were no stickers, but I remember many sermons where it was suggested that we bring our unbelieving friends with us to church. However, inviting unbelievers into a gathering of the ecclesia is almost entirely unbiblical. Almost because of this one scripture found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23, which leaves open a hypothetical possibility that an unbeliever might enter an assembly of the called out ones. Let me just read that to you. It says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The scripture implies that it's a possibility. I mean, this is not the main focus of, of what this scripture is getting at, but it implies that there's this possibility that an unbeliever may find their way into a meeting of the ecclesia. Other than this one scripture, in which Paul is trying to make the point that the gift of prophecy can be more useful than speaking in tongues, scripture indicates that evangelism is not something that normally takes place when the ecclesia gathers, authentic followers of Jesus. The purpose of meeting together is not winning new converts to Christ. Rather, it's for the edification of the ecclesia. Assembling is an inward-facing function meant for the health and support of the body. An outsider who is not a part of the body is literally a foreign antibody until the day that God calls them and gives them a new spirit, if that's ever going to happen. And that is something Scripture suggests is normally accomplished outside of assemblies of the ecclesia. Of course, evangelicals, who say the top priority of the ecclesia is to win souls and to make disciples, argue against this. Now, admittedly, I have no doubt that God has used bringing unbelievers to church to call them to salvation. I've heard many stories along these lines. But, just like he calls people to salvations in the mountains, and in offices, and taverns, and jails, and casinos, and brothels, a modern-day example of this is an organization called Hookers for Jesus. And, as a former corrections professional, I am also very familiar with what you call jailhouse conversions. When he walked the earth, Jesus met people and convinced them to follow him wherever he found them, which, get this, never included church. The authors of the New Testament repeatedly differentiate between insiders, those elect to salvation, who are the ecclesia, and the outsiders, the non-elect, who have no part in the ecclesia. Paul gives some advice on how to approach those on the outside. Listen to this. This is from Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 
The subtle message here in that scripture is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach that will work when we give answers to those who are currently not believers. There's no single pamphlet or evangelical movie or snappy system to present the gospel with. Wisdom requires an individual approach to each lost soul. Most importantly, it requires the Holy Spirit's action and timing. There are no non-believers amongst Jesus' ecclesia. However, there are many non-believers, or what's called tares in the New Testament, attending church today. Weeds is another word for tares. When the term ecclesia is used in the New Testament, with only a couple exceptions, it's only referring to those who have been chosen, purchased, and called out from the rest of the population of the world to be a special people of Jesus. As far as humans go, it's only they, the ecclesia, who will be the royal subjects of God the Father and His Son, Jesus, throughout eternity. Given that information, when I read in the Bible that something pertains to the ecclesia, normally translated as church, of course, or that one of the letters that makes up the New Testament is addressed to the ecclesia. Should I take it to mean that unbelievers who are not disciples of Jesus are included in the address to the ecclesia? Well, no, of course not. When it, this may sound like uh, unwelcoming, <laughs> but when unbelievers read the Bible, until the day that they are illuminated and called by the Holy Spirit to understanding, they are literally reading someone else's mail. Today, when I go to church, especially if it's a large one, there's a good chance that I may be sitting next to an unbeliever. Churches may have a large percentage of seekers, those who are curious about the gospel, but who have not yet if ever they will, decided to make Jesus their Lord. Another percentage sitting in the pews are those who are not seeking, but are in church for other various motivations. Like, you know, in my 25-year career working for the sheriff's office, I spent five years working in a community correction center. It was a correctional work release facility that inmates, or what we called residents, were allowed out of the facility for various reasons. Now, I signed like all the other deputies did, many passes for the Community Correction Center residents to attend church. They did not try to hide the fact that it was because they wanted to get out of the building, and attending a religious service was one of the reasons that it was allowed. Other residents wanted to go to church because they wanted it to appear to a judge or a probation, probation officer, or their family, or their girlfriend, that they're getting their life back on track. And yet, even others enjoy just taking advantage of the hospitality of those who they considered to be not hospitable, but naive and gullible, that they always found in church. Now, this is a little inside scoop, but the, the reason that uh, you can know about their motivations like this is because when they're in your custody and you're responsible for their safety and security, that um, you can listen in on their conversations. They have no privacy there. And these are the kind of things that you hear them talking about. Well, 
community corrections, and the reason why you do that is because sometimes you can hear them uh, plotting and conspiring either illegal things or things that are against the rules or um, uh, we gather intelligence and that kind of deal. Anyway, going down a rabbit trail there. Um, these community correction center residents are not the only ones who have the alternative reasons for attending church. You know, they're just an example, the low-hanging fruit. As we see just before many major elections, for example, politicians who are trying to impress a certain target market will also do so. Young non-Christian men who have their gaze set upon a, set up, set upon a certain Christian female will do so. People who are trying to get custody of their children may want to impress others how moral they are and will sit through many sermons. Non-Christian spouses will attend church for years with their spouse out of love for them, not only love for Jesus, if any love for Jesus. And of course, lonely people seeking companionship may find a church a safe place to find friendship. So, what am I saying here? I am not saying anything. I am pointing to what the Bible has to say about the purpose of the gathering of the ecclesia. According to Scripture, that purpose does not seem to include evangelism. Meeting with other called-out ones is supposed to be what you might think of or call family time. It's a time of intimacy and trust, where everyone present shares the bond of following Jesus and being indwelled by the one Holy Spirit. When you introduce an outsider who is neither indwelled by the illuminating Holy Spirit or seeking to follow Jesus, you have introduced another spirit and another goal. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We live our lives along with the world, but the gathering of the ecclesia is a place of refuge. Inviting believers, or excuse me, unbelievers to your meetings may cause a pastor to week after week focus on preaching as an evangelist rather than teaching the deeper things of Christ. In this way, your fellowship may never advance in corporate knowledge of Jesus any further than the milk of the gospel, essentially rendering it a spiritual nursery for baby Christians. Secondly, as it was in the early days of the ecclesia, one day it may become a real threat to the safety and security of the called out to have those who do not belong to Jesus among you. Maybe not today, but under the conditions described in prophetic scripture, one day betrayal will be become common as people allegiance turns towards the government of the Antichrist. Certainly the underground church in Iran today would know what I'm talking about here. So, next Sunday, should you begin an inquisition to determine who's an authentic follower of Jesus and who is not, and then drive out the infidel from among you? Again, I'm a provider of biblical information and not a decider in what takes place when you gather with other ecclesia. But 
driving out the infidel from among you <laughs> sounds a little extreme. The fact is, if you're attending a traditional church, having unbelievers among you may be one of <laughs> the many issues you have to deal with. You know, maybe simply starting by not emphasizing bringing unbelievers to church would be a great place to start. By focusing on the principles of faith, hope, and love when the local body meets, rather than other things such as evangelism and social services, the issue might just resolve itself. Well, that's it for the book of 1 Corinthians. Everything directly pertaining to the ecclesia mentioned in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and to the Galatians have already been discussed in previous episodes. There is a long list of things that have been covered, so if you're just joining this series, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous podcasts. Well, that's it for this time. Next time, we'll be picking up our New Testament survey in Paul's letter to the called out living in the region of Ephesus. Until then, may God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.